You're listening to Global Conversations. All right, welcome to Global Conversations, everybody. I'm Regina, and I'm joined today with Jesse Martin and MGA1 and Brody Hoppenheim and MGA2. Thank you guys so much for being here today. I'm really excited to hear about your recent trip to Japan with the Kakahashi Project. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions, but it's going to be more of a conversation. So if you have little anecdotes you want to uh, chime in with, feel free to. But other than that, are you guys ready to get started? We can talk for about sure. your trip. Yeah. Thanks Amazing. for having us. So first off, for anybody listening who isn't aware, could one of you explain what the Kakahashi Project is? Sure. Yeah, sure. So the Kakahashi Project uh, is um, something that Japan created a few years ago after their earthquake, and uh, it was really to engage with um, different nations that have helped, had helped them uh, with aid for the earthquake. And so for Canada, uh, they take 50 students every year, and so this year they took 25 from the University of Toronto and 25 from the Ottawa universities, uh, and it's really supposed to create like a bridge politically, culturally, between Canada and Japan, and then they will send um, some of their students to Canada to learn about Canada as well. Awesome. So it's kind of like a cooperation project. Yeah, that, exactly. Oh, cool, that's awesome. And so being in Japan for, what was it, a week? Yeah. That was probably a very quick turnaround. Um, I can't even imagine the jet lag, but, I mean, everyone's different, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, what specifically did you do on this trip? Like, were there, like, planned events? Were there, you know, specific seminars that you would to go to, or was it kind of just a way of engaging with the culture, or was it both? Yeah, so we had uh, we had a guide uh, bringing us around who was just an absolute uh, pleasure to be around. She was super uh, friendly and super knowledgeable about the country, and she spoke English fluently, so um, we definitely didn't feel, feel like there were any language barriers. And then even while we were in Japan, uh, at least in Tokyo, I didn't really feel like language much of an issue. It seemed that mm-hmm. a lot of people spoke various degrees, varying degrees of, of English. Um, but, yeah, so we had a... Uh, pretty extensive schedule. We were we were doing things from about six to seven a.m. until uh, at least until dinner time as part of the trip. And then after that, we had a little bit more time to explore whatever city we were in on our on our own free time. Um, and so, like the first night we got there, it was just kind of quick orientation stuff. And then um, you know you're left to your own devices. Although it was a pretty early night for everyone, I think, because we were all <laughs> tired from the the fourteen hour flight. Um, but then the next day. The Monday, we actually kind of just jumped right into it after uh, another orientation session. We actually left Tokyo right away and went straight to uh, a city called Sendai um, in kind of northeastern Japan. And um, from there, that was kind of the staging ground to go to our homestay as well as to do the uh, university exchange with people from uh, students at Tohoku University, um, which is located uh, right on the outskirts of, of Sendai. Um, do you want to take it in maybe from the homestay part? Yeah, so the homestay was uh, really neat. Probably, I think, the f- favorite uh, and most enriching for, I think, everyone there. Yeah. Uh, so it was about two and a half days, and the between three to six of us, uh, we were divided up into like three to six gr- uh, students, and we were, you know, different families collected us at the kind of tourism office in the city, uh, and we just kind of dove into their daily lives, and so they really showed us their traditional... Um, give us traditional meals, we sat at um, traditional um, dining tables, so you, they're heated underneath with blankets, uh, and so it's these kind of like these you know, unique experiences that you don't expect, uh, but you really kind of gain understanding of their daily lives and what the Japanese culture uh, really means. Uh, and a big part of it was uh, not just learning you know, about the cuisine, 
um, cultural traditions, but uh, the areas that we went to were specifically um, uh, identified because of the how the earthquake affected them. And so we learned a lot about um, in the nine years since their earthquake, um, how they've rebuilt, what uh, you know, both local and the federal government had uh, has done for the communities and how the communities have bounced back. I think in a pretty remarkable way. Yeah. Uh, from what I would expect, mm-hmm. um, in just nine years, what, what would happen? Yeah. And yeah, we also were able to tour around uh, their um, like little uh, villages and towns, uh, local villages and towns, and uh, so that was really nice. I got to meet some of his neighbors, um, and uh, you know it was just really really enjoyable to experience uh, their you know what their daily routine was like, and saw some of like the local hot spots, and uh, did a little shopping of course. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I would say for sure for me as well that was my favorite experience. I uh, discovered Japanese curry, which I didn't realize was was a thing, yeah, but it sure. is it is delicious. <laughs> yeah. I would love to have some. If anyone knows of any restaurants uh, in Toronto that serves <laughs> Japanese curry, please let me know ASAP. Um, and uh, after the home stay, you know, there was a bit of an emotional goodbye. Um, uh, it, it was really it was just sad to leave them. You know, we kind of just despite uh, despite at least there being a little bit of a language barrier, um, we kind of just you know fit in you know, kind of built our own little families together, and uh, it was certainly sad to leave them, but um, uh, after that we were we were fortunate to go to, um, I don't remember actually the name of the, name of the town um, that was centered uh, with the recovery. Yeah, Ishiramaki? I think, yeah, nice, yeah, that was yeah. nicely done. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that town had recovered remarkably since the earthquake. We went to, um, we went to the kind of the earthquake museum, um, and it was also just functioning as like a, you know, uh, Community center. Yeah, community center as well. And, uh, you know, I mean, the the water levels had reached up to, like, 10 feet high or something. It's absolutely well, crazy. Like, you yeah. know, mind-blocking. I mean, you're, you know, you as an individual, you see this wall of water coming at you. We, we can't even imagine what it was like. Um, and they showed just how extensive the damage had been to, to the area and actually how, it, you know, it had penetrated, like, several kilometers inland, too, mm-hmm. uh, far from the sea. Um and this was a this was a coastal town. I guess I should add that was like right off of where the earthquake, um, the epicenter of the earthquake, and yeah, it, it really was remarkable. And we learned a lot about the resilience of the Japanese people, and uh, just you know what effort what can be accomplished when a group of people get together in the face of disaster and you know put their minds and resources together and kind of just rebuild. And we, when we returned, I didn't. Had I not been told of where we were going, had I not been to the museum, you wouldn't have expected this town to have like practically been decimated mm-hmm. um, For sure. by uh, by the earthquake. And you know, nine years later, they've done a remarkable job, and now they're building these seawalls and all these other different measures to kind of act as a defense against future earthquakes and the ensuing tsunamis. Yeah. Absolutely, thank you. Um, so now that you're back, uh, I'm sure you have some withdrawals. Um, mm-hmm. What were what would you say you're doing now post trip to help further the information um, known about this program? Because from my from my perspective, I had no idea what it was. Um, I didn't you know know if it was something that was available to you know monk students or students outside of the program. So, um, what are you guys doing now to maybe make this more known and make this um, incredible experience clearly? Um, more readily available for, for students who may be interested in learning more about this region? Yeah, so at an individual level, um, you know, we're continuing to uh, post on social media about our experiences there. Uh, and because it's organized through the Asian Institute here at UFT, 
um, we want to promote that for the you know future years because it was I think such a beneficial experience for everyone that went on mm -hmm. the trip. Um, so yeah, social media is at the individual level, um, but you know we're, we're engaging with um, you know the monk school uh, directly through this podcast. Uh, and the other side of UFT that went um, was largely from the East Asian studies, and so um, they definitely have a better understanding of the culture going into it. And um, all, a few of them, at least, are of uh, you know have um, partial uh, Japanese uh, or they're you know they're half Japanese or something. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they are wanting to do things um, culturally. So one of them uh, wants to I think she said that uh, make some uh, Japanese cuisine and have like kind mm -hmm. of. Um, you know, invite people in from the university and kind of experience that as like a night together. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Oh my gosh, I would love to do that. <laughs> um, so I have another question about. Um, so in light of you know the coronavirus, there's a lot of dialogue right now about um, kind of this isolation that that we're starting to impose on. Well, not me personally, that that people are starting to impose on the East Asian region, and I'm I'm curious to you know to see and, and I'm curious to hear from you guys, you know, being in Japan very, very recently, what do you think are the cultural implications that this might have with Canada's relationship or the world's relationship with Asia in general um, in light of the coronavirus? And um, how do you think this will further hinder cooperation in the long run? Yeah, well, I think, you know, uh, since it's um, becoming more of a, a global pandemic, uh, yeah, you hear a lot of reports about, um, really about like, kind of racism about people not they don't want to go to you know uh, Asian restaurants and because they they believe in all this, uh, which is complete misinformation. And I think uh, being there, uh, you see you know the the steps that um, that they're taking already. Mm -hmm. We were there kind of at the beginning uh, of the trip, but they told us as soon as we arrived, you know there was various checks to make sure that everyone was doing okay, um, temperature taken regularly. Uh, and I think uh, you really see through their you know the society. I think actually the number one thing that we talked about numerous times uh, was about cleanliness yeah. within uh, Japan and how it just like, surpasses anything that Canada mm -hmm. uh, has, um, you know, both culturally but also um, through, like, you know, uh, state policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I think with the coronavirus, it's, you know, people just believe that because uh, it started in Asia that it must be terrible there and uh, that you know, we shouldn't travel there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think there's certain precautions to be taken, but uh, we went there, it was very safe. Yeah. Um, I, I would go back, you know, tomorrow, really. Um, but, in, yeah, for the future, I think, you know, it, it will be difficult um, if, you know, let's say the, the, the Tokyo Olympics are cancelled. Um, but I think just what's really important is to keep these programs going. I'd also add that I think, you know, this idea of isolation, it's, it's mutual at this point because it's so widespread. It's mm -hmm. not just like countries isolating themselves from Japan. Like Japan itself has also started to isolate itself from other countries. For sure, um, absolutely. You know, Canada starting to, um, you know, uh, basically tell deny people to travel to regions around the world, including, in, in, you know, in Europe as well. Um, we're seeing it happening in the U.S. right now. So I think it's just kind of recognition from the world that it's, it's, it's here and it's, it's going to be around for the next foreseeable future. So let's all do what we can together to try and prevent uh, a further spread. But I also think it opens up the, the opportunities for, for uh, you know, further collaboration, at least on the medical side of things, in terms of, uh, you know, researching, doing more research on the coronavirus and trying to develop a vaccine together. And, you know, uh, the international community has pledged billions of dollars, whether it's the um, IMF <clears throat> or WHO, to try and combat the disease. And I think countries are also contributing, um, you know, aid and uh, development programs to one another to help combat the spread. So... 
despite the, f the fear, uh, I think this does actually open up opportunities for, for uh, collaboration. And as Jesse said, I do think it's important to keep these um, opportunities for cooperation and, and programs open, you know, just to kind of do away with a lot of the stigma and, and fears that are associated in surrounding the virus. And so obviously you guys are, you, you go to the Monk School of Global Affairs, you clearly have an interest in global affairs. So um, in relation to that, um, how do you think this trip has improved your understanding um, of the world, of, 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 the, of the Asian context? Yeah, I think for a couple things for me um, is just looking at kind of Japan's public policy. Uh, I think a lot of the technological advances that they've had um, that can certain lax. Um, so I think the bullet trains. The, yeah, like the bullet trains. Efficiency. Example, efficiency, <laughs> I think, is just like a, that was special. a trend throughout Japan. Uh, and so just subtle <clears throat> things uh, throughout our trip, just, you know, whether that be on yeah, transport or, you know, walking uh, during different like, guided trips. Uh, you know, I think, yeah, some of the technology and innovation that Japan has uh, that we, sh we could bring back um, uh, to Canada would be really useful. Absolutely. Um, for me, I would say it was, what's it called, disaster response and then, like, recovery um, operations. I, I was pretty amazed by, you know, again, how quickly they were able to um, basically get lives back together. You know, the, it was very unfortunate that uh, I think roughly 20,000 uh, people, um, maybe a little less, um, perished from the earthquake. Um, and, um, you know, it's something not to be overlooked, but in terms of the international response in, in helping Japan re recover, it was pretty remarkable, and I think that um, it's something that we should always keep in mind, and, you know, especially as climate change um, increases, um, the, sorry, the, the negative aspects of climate change increase in, in frequency over the next uh, few decades, it's important for the international community to kind of, you know, bind together. It's not an opportunity to, you know, further isolate, rather we should come together and help out one another where we can. And so instances like the earthquake, um, while, uh, you know, very unfortunate and sad, open up opportunities for cooperation and, you know, uh, are examples that uh, the kind of community can show solidarity together. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, Jesse, you are specifically um, going to be, I think, in, you said China, I think, earlier? Yeah, yeah. next fall. Yeah, yeah. For, for your exchange, which is mm -hmm. so cool. Um, so you clearly have an interest, and I, I don't know about you, Brody, if you have a specific interest in Asian studies, but um, why do you think there's such a kind of this gap in, in the dialogue and literature about Asian politics? And I don't mean to you know, generalize Asia, but even specifically in Asian countries, why do we think that there's such a gap in the conversation about it? Yeah, I think um, I don't know, on a kind of basic level, the, the biggest barrier is just cultural. So mm -hmm. uh, Canada being you know, a settler uh, colony from uh, from Britain, uh, we just now have t stronger relations with Europe, and that's kind of where we, we tend to go right away. Uh, but you know, especially with Japan, but other Asian countries, we actually have increasingly uh, or have more in common and stronger relationships, you know, economic ties. And I think it's uh, increasingly important for us to uh, continue to reach out and have um, you know not just um, you know the highest level political dialogue. But you really integrate that into society. Mm -hmm. um, I do think a, a challenge that we face, though, is um, as it was brought up on our trip, that um, specifically Japanese Canadian relations have, um, you know, tenuous historical relationship because of the treatment of um, Japanese people in Canada about 100 years ago or a little less. Uh, and I think that's something that Canada, should, uh, you know, confront more and have an open dialogue with the Japanese community. And I think that would actually, you know, open up things more. Uh, because then, you know, we'd have a more honest relationship. Uh, something not dissimilar to what's starting to go on with the indigenous populations here. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I would say I think part of it too stems from um, you know just education system in terms of you know, when we learn history in elementary or high school, um, you know it's from a pretty much a West European perspective, um, and you know as Jess mentioned, Canada is a settler country, so you know um, I guess our our history. Uh, well, you know, equally if not more invaluable comes from the indigenous side. Unfortunately, a lot of that's left out um, of the conversation. When it is brought up, it's in the context of when the colonists arrive. Um, and then, you know, when you go to, if you learn about uh, international relations or if you're a poli-sci student, uh, poli-sci as we know it, uh, as we learn about it at least, is a, as a Western construct. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. started from the Westphalian system in like the 1600s. So um, I feel like unless you're kind of uh, voluntarily taking classes like on exactly yeah. these East Asian courses and whatnot, um, you're by default just going to get more of a West uh, education and history on, on like Western Europe. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's certainly an unfortunate aspect. One of my favorite courses I took in undergrad um, was, uh, I forget the official name, but I think on like something was called like um, Indian Ocean World History. And it was about the history of the world from the persp- from like uh, basically from well the Indian Ocean, so mostly law from like uh, India, um, Kenya, Indonesia, and uh, Mozambique, and it was just absolutely fascinating. And you know, the Europeans only came up in the conversation when the explorers came about. But other than that, like they were rarely brought up. So to me, that was fascinating. Um, but I but I think it circles back to unless you're voluntarily actively seeking mm-hmm. it out, you're, it's not going to just kind of fall into your hands unless yeah. it's the context of European exploration. Actually, so Jesse and I went to Queens together, mm-hmm. and we were in a fourth-year seminar on Asia-Pacific IR, which was one of the coolest courses, I think. Um, one, because it was quite literally the only one offered in the politics department. Yeah. Um, and two, it was an area of politics and history and, you know, the confluence of everything um, that was just so new, and I felt like... For somebody who has Asian heritage, I was like, I should probably know some of this, and I I felt so felt so silly for not. Um, but another thing that they were that we spent a lot of time talking about, I don't know if you remember, was the language barrier and how that has also been a huge barrier to access to different scholarship that's mm-hmm. been done in Asia. Yeah, I think for anyone looking to go to Japan specifically or Asia, uh, um, I know Tokyo. Yeah, certainly as we were mentioning, it's very you know. Uh, it's increasingly diverse city in English. It's easy to get by with just English, um, but I also think yeah, it's it's uh, you know challenging yourself to go somewhere uh, where English isn't the dominant language and spending time maybe learning a language there beforehand mm-hmm. uh, is something really uh, fulfilling. And I think uh, you know I now from experiencing this trip um, want to learn more about Japanese culture, and I um, I'm you know looking to go back um, in the near future. Awesome. Um, so one of the last questions I have for you is about the Kakahashi program in general. Mm-hmm. Um, how might the Kakahashi program be improved, and what areas should it consider for further growth and you know building uh, more cooperation and m- mending those past bridges that you mentioned earlier, Jesse, for the future? Yeah, I think um, you know from a perspective of someone that's been yeah international relations specifically, um, that was probably one experience we didn't get fully was um, you know looking at like you know Japanese security. Uh, and foreign policy, so I would love for the next trip um, for that, you know, to be, like, you know, that specific um, topic to be maybe, you know, improved a little bit. Um, but I think actually on the other side, uh, I think based on, you know, the uh, provisions for us in Japan, uh, I think it would be great for Canada to create uh, kind of a similar program 
in the reverse way. Because um, while you know students were going to come to Canada, it sounds like they weren't going to have as like, expansive as a as a experience as we did. Definitely, um, I agree with, with what Jesse's saying. I would have liked there to have been a little more uh, foreign relations, foreign policy, security side of things. But uh, maybe that's just us because we're interested in security. But I think mm-hmm. it would have been interesting to to have. Um, but I, I understand, of course, that you know. Um, it's only a seven-day trip. It's supposed to be almost like a, a teaser of Japan, and it when it was you know the perfect teaser. I mean, I think I spoke speaking on behalf of everyone when we would all love to go back. Um, I, I would have loved for the homestay to have lasted an extra day or two, but again, I understand that you know we're very heavily constrained by time, um, and we had we had a pretty action-packed schedule, um, and uh, I certainly admire their flexibility. You know when. When uh, things might have gone south, our guy just kept a cool head and just said, "All right, we're going to do this instead." And you know, I, there really were not many hiccups on the trip. So, yeah, seriously, other than other than Jesse's comment about I would prefer to learn a little bit more about Japanese foreign policy, I I was pretty happy with uh, with how the trip went. No, no, no complaints on my part. That's awesome. Well, I'll make sure to uh, provide the link that you sent me, Jesse, just about the program if people are cool. curious about yeah. the podcast. Um, thank you both so much for coming on Global Conversations Thanks and sharing a little about your trip. Yeah, you. And uh, hopefully um, this continues to happen for students and they get to have the experience to visit Japan. And hopefully you guys get to go back one day and yes. <laughs> spend a little bit more time. Um, but that is all for today. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you in the next episode.